If you brought your Bibles, you can turn them right now and turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 is where we find ourselves. By the way, my name is Chris Ward. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And this week, uh, we get to continue on in our series in this book of James. And as you find your place in James chapter 2, uh, this past weekend as I was working on this message, I was remembering back to the first time that I came across a couple of verses in our Bible that I don't think it's an exaggeration to say if they didn't change my life, they, they really did impact my life in a really significant way. And I was, I was first introduced to these verses um, actually in a seminary class that I had. And this was a really interesting seminary class because what, what we would do in the seminary class is every time we met the, together, the professor would take a particular subject that the Bible talks about. And what he would do is he'd spend the whole class just tracing this particular subject all throughout the Bible to show us what the whole Bible said about this particular topic. And the lecture that stood out to me the most was when the professor was talking about what the Bible says about God's heart for the poor and the needy and the outcast in this world. And he started in the book of Genesis and he went through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and so on and he just showed us all these different passages about what the Bible says about God's heart for people in that position. And I'll be perfectly honest with you, for probably the first half of this lecture or so, I was sort of half paying attention. I was, I think, on the internet. I was sort of daydreaming. And I was doing that until the professor shared this particular passage in Jeremiah chapter 22 that I'm going to share with you in just a second. We'll put it on the screen in just a second. But let me give you the background of it. Uh, this passage in Jeremiah 22, the context for it is in Jeremiah 22, God is coming down really hard on the kings that Israel had at this time. This is about 600 years before Jesus. And the reason he's coming down hard on these kings is because these kings are not doing what he wants his kings to do. They're all focused on making a great name for themselves and building a big palace and that sort of thing. And that is not what God wants his kings to be about. And so in the middle of Jeremiah 22, what God does is he brings up a former king that Israel had who did what was right in his eyes. And God wants to use this king as an example to the Israelites. And I want you to listen to what God says about this king. We'll put these verses on the screen. Jeremiah 22, starting in verse 15. God says this, he says, does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? And understand God is actually talking sarcastically here. He's saying, does it make you a king to have a bigger and bigger house? And the answer is obviously no. Continue on, God says this, and now he's gonna talk about the king who was a good example. He said, did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well. And then here's the key verse, verse 16. God says this, he says, he defended the cause of the poor and needy, so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. And I want to read that verse again because that's the verse that stood out to me, okay? Again, God is talking about this king who did what was right in his eyes. And this is what he says. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. And let me tell you something. For as long as I live, I don't think I will ever forget the moment that that professor first read those words. In fact, I can still picture it in my mind's eye. Because the second he read that passage right there, I remember I stopped daydreaming, I stopped half paying attention, and I remember literally I, I sat up straight in my chair, and I don't know if my jaw literally dropped, but figuratively it did. And the reason why is because, listen, one of my major goals in my life, in fact, I would say the main goal in my life, in fact, in many ways, the reason I went to seminary in the first place is I want to know God. I mean, at the end of my life, if there's nothing else that is said about me, what I want to be said about me is Chris Ward, he knew God. 
And here we find in these couple of verses one of the clearest statements in the entire Bible about what it means, what it looks like to know God. And it comes from the very lips of God himself. And what does God say here? Well, he says that to know him is to stand on the side of the poor and the needy in this world. To know him is to rise up and to defend those that the rest of society casts off. And what we see in this couple, these couple of verses, men and women, is something that the entire Bible teaches us. And that is God's heart for those that the rest of the world often neglects. And you can see this in Genesis all the way to Revelation. In fact, if I had time today, I would take you through the literally hundreds of passages, many of them, I might say, coming from the lips of, very G- of Jesus himself, that talk about God's heart for those that the rest of society often neglects. And what the Bible teaches us in this is it teaches us that the priorities of our God, men and women, simply put, are so very different than the priorities of the world out there, right? What God cares about and what God values is often so different from what the world out there cares about and what the world out there values. And therefore, what that means is as people who seek to follow after God, which is what the church is supposed to be, right? As people who seek to reflect God, guess what? What God cares about also needs to be what we care about. What God values also needs to be what we value. But what we need to understand, men and women, is that there is always going to be this danger and there is always going to be this pull within God's church. And that is, the danger is that we would begin to reflect and hear the same priorities and the values of the world out there. And we would not reflect what it is that God wants us to be about. And this is not just a danger that we face in the 21st century. This is a danger that goes all the way back to the very first church. And this is exactly what we see in our passage for today. As I said, we're in James chapter 2 here, and as this passage that we're looking at today, as it opens up, what we find out is we find out that there's a very serious problem that is going on in the churches that James is writing to. And the problem is that these churches, simply put, they're, they're reflecting the world too much. They're acting too much like the world. And the way that this is being exemplified in these churches is that they are paying special attention and favor to the rich in their community And they're beginning to neglect and even show with disdain and contempt the poor in their community. Pick it up in verse 1 of James chapter 2 and you'll see what I mean. James writes this. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Stop right there. And what we see James do for us here is he paints for us a scenario and it's a very easy scenario for us to envision and imagine, right? What James says here is imagine there's a church having a church service. And at this particular church service, two visitors walk in through the door. And these two visitors could not be more different from each other. One of the visitors, we're told, is a rich man. He wears fine clothes. He has a gold ring. The other visitor, however, we're told, is a poor man. He wears filthy clothes. The word means shabby. It means dirty. In other words, the impression that we are given is this guy, he came straight in off the street. He was probably homeless, or at the very least, he was at the very bottom of society at this time. And we're told these two visitors come in, and the church, it notices these two visitors, and it treats these two visitors completely differently. 
We're told that to the rich man, this church sort of welcomes the rich man with open arms. In fact, one pastor I came across said that the church becomes blinded by the bling of the rich man. And I like that imagery. They're blinded by the bling. And they say to the rich man, here, we want you to have the best seat in the house, which was likely in this time, it was at the very front of the sanctuary. And they sort of roll out the red carpet for the rich man. That's not at all, however, they have to, uh, the reaction that they have for the poor man. In fact, we're told that this church does worse than just ignore the poor man. It probably would have been better if they just ignored him. But what this church says to the poor man is they say, you can't have a seat. They say, if you, if you want to come to our church, you have to stand at the back. Or they say this, they say, if you want to have a seat, you can't sit in a chair. They say, you have to sit at our feet. And literally, they say, into verse 3, the literal translation is, you have to sit underneath our footstool. You know what that would be like? That would be like saying to a visitor at our church, hey, if you want to have a seat at our church, you have to find a seat somewhere underneath the stage. That's the only spot for you. And so they could not treat these visitors too, uh, it, it, more differently than they do. And it's obvious what is going on in this church, right? And what this church is doing is they're beginning to reflect the values of the world. In fact, it struck me this past week that this church that James uses as an example here, that, that they're acting more like a casino than they are a church. Not that I've ever been to a casino before, but I've heard about them. And they're paying attention to the high rollers. They're paying attention to those that they can get something from. And they're sort of uh, uh, casting aside those who can't give them anything. And what I want you to see, men and women, is I want you to see what it is that James calls this behavior. And you see it in verse 1. At the end of verse 1, he calls it favoritism. You see that there? He says, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ was not show favoritism. And actually, I think the Greek, the, the, the English word favoritism there, I think it's actually too weak a word, a too weak a translation of the underlying Greek word. Because the underlying Greek word is a lot stronger. And that's why there's one translation out there. And I think this is the better translation. It translates that underlying Greek word as prejudice. And I think that's what's going on here because that's exactly what this church is doing. What is this church is doing? Well, they are prejudging people. That's where the word prejudice comes from, right? They're prejudging people based on appearance. They're making decisions about how they're going to treat people based ultimately on very silly and superficial characteristics. And that is the very definition of prejudice. And obviously, men and women, this is not something that only the early church struggled with. This is something that churches still struggle with today. As I was working on this message, I was reminded of a true story I once heard of a church who found out one weekend that a celebrity was going to be visiting their church. It was a famous singer. And the celebrity was, was visiting their church not to sing, not to speak, but they were coming because they just had a friend in this church who was uh, dedicating their baby that particular weekend. It was baby dedications, and, and this celebrity wanted to support their friend. Well, when the church found out that there was going to be a celebrity in their services their week, that weekend, they literally held extra meetings during the week to talk about how to make that celebrity feel as welcome as possible. They wanted to make sure that they had a service that was as, 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 as great an experience for this celebrity as they possibly could. And that's exactly what is going on here in James chapter 2. And that's probably one of the most egregious examples of, of, of the sin of this church in James chapter 2. But I'll tell you what, this sort of behavior, this sort of prejudging, it, it can happen in other ways in the church today as well. Uh, I, one of the things I was surprised to find out when I became a pastor and I didn't know this before I became a pastor, but I was surprised to find out that there are some very deep-seated feelings that some people have in the church about the quote-unquote right way to educate your children. 
And based on whether you've decided to homeschool your kids or send your kids to private school or send your kids to public school, there are some Christians who will treat you very differently based on that decision. Or as another example, there are some people who will only treat with kindness uh, people when they find out if they voted the same way that they voted in the last election. And they will look down on you if they found out that you voted differently. And that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg, right? Unfortunately, there are so many examples of this. There are some people in the church, for example, who will prejudge you. They will treat you differently when they find out what kind of car you drive. When they find out whether or not you have a tattoo. When they find out how you let your children dress. When they find out whether or not you've been through a divorce or not. And then, still today, yes, in some churches, there are some people who will treat with contempt and animosity other people based solely on the color of their skin and their country of origin and the places they grew up. In other words, prejudice is not something that died with the first century, right? It is something that, unfortunately, is still alive today. And why is it that this is so wrong? I know that may seem like a silly question, but why is it that this is so bad? Well, that's what James addresses next. Look with me starting in verse 5. He says this, he says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? And what we have in these couple of verses here is we have the first of two reasons that James gives for why the behavior of these Christians is wrong. And the first reason that James gives is this. You know, in the first century, the Christians that James were writing to, they were undergoing a lot of persecution. And by and large, do you know what group of people in the first century was most responsible for the persecution of Christians? you know who it was? It was the rich people. And that's what James is talking about here in verse 6. He says, aren't the rich the ones who are dragging you into court? Aren't the rich the ones who are exploiting you? And what James is saying in this is he's saying, Christian, why in the world would you go out of your way to show preferential treatment to the very people who are trying to make life the most miserable for you? That doesn't make any sense. Now understand, James is not advocating the opposite thing happened here. He's not advocating then that these Christians be mean to the rich people. As we'll see, the point that James makes is that Christians need to treat everybody the same. That's the eventual point that James will make. But nevertheless, what James is, the point that James is making here is that the poor are no less deserving of our love than anybody else. In fact, what James points out in verse 5 is the very thing that I pointed out at the very beginning of this message. And that is, as we look throughout the Bible, it seems that God seems to have a special heart for the poor. So if God has a special heart for the poor, we need to have a special heart for the poor as well. And by the way, there is a little bit of an application for us in this. You know, it's interesting that these Christians are trying to seek the approval of those who are least likely to give it to them, right? Well, I have found that that's sort of a universal principle in this life. That as human beings, we tend to seek out the most, the approval and the acceptance of those who are least likely to give it to us. In fact, I saw a humorous illustration of this a while back, uh, the fake satirical newspaper, The Onion. Uh, They wrote an article about this, and it was a title that stood out to me the most. We'll put it on the back screen. The title was this, 38-year-old man still careful not to say anything former middle school bully would disapprove of. And how many of you can relate to that? Yeah, and those of you not raising your hands, you were the middle school bullies. I know who you are now. And isn't that interesting? 
Isn't it interesting that we tend to want the validation most of those who are least capable of, least likely to treat us with kindness and dignity and respect? Why is that? Well, I don't know the reason why that is, but I do take comfort from the fact that this goes back 2,000 years. Here the early church was trying to impress most those least likely to appreciate it. And and that just doesn't make sense. And that's the first reason that James gives for us for why what these Christians were doing were wrong. But I'll tell you what, it's the second reason that James gives for us that I think speaks to us the most today. Because in the next couple of verses, in verses 8 and 9, James goes beyond just this situation of the rich and poor that the first century were struggling with. And what James does in verses 8 and 9 is he tells us why all prejudice is wrong. And why all discrimination against certain people is wrong. Look with me at verses 8 and 9 and you'll see what I mean. James says this. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And let me read verse 8 again because this is the key. James says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. And brothers and sisters, this is what it comes down to. It comes down to Jesus, and it comes down to his instruction. Some of you may know that that scripture that James quotes in the middle of verse 8, it's actually actually a statement of Jesus's in Matthew chapter 22. And in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And actually what he's doing is he is quoting a passage in the Old Testament. You see, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment in the entire Bible? And Jesus's basic response to that question is, you, you can't narrow it down to just one. He says, oh yes, there is a very important commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We might be able to say that that's the greatest commandment. But then he says this. He says there's another commandment that is, that is almost as equal to the first commandment, as, 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 almost as great as the first commandment. And the other commandment is this. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to love those around us. And that's why James calls this here the royal law. And what he means when he calls this statement, love your neighbor as yourself, the royal law, what he means by that is that more than anything else, this is what is supposed to mark us as God's people. We are to be known by the love that we have for others. We are to be known by the love that we have for our neighbors. And this is what the early church was failing to do. Oh, it was loving the rich well, but it wasn't loving the poor. And whenever we as God's people, whenever we display prejudice and whenever we decide to treat people differently based on some criteria that we have made up, that is what we are failing to do. We are failing to love our neighbor as ourselves. And obviously there's so much relevancy in, in, in this for us today. You know, it sort of goes without, goes without saying men and women, but, but we live in an age of division and disagreement, right? In fact, all you need to do to see that is look at how the three major cable news networks cover the same event. (laughs) They can't agree on anything. We live in an age of division and disagreement. And this may sound surprising to some of you, but you know how I feel about that? I'm okay with that. I'm not troubled by that. And the reason why is I'm sort of a realist, and I know that this side of heaven, disagreements are unavoidable. Divisions are unavoidable. We're not going to all act the same way. We're not going to all think the same way. We're not going to all believe the same things. In fact, even the very leaders of our faith, the apostles in the Bible, even they disagreed. And sometimes they disagreed on really big issues. In a fallen world, division and disagreement, it's just going to be a part of our world. So that doesn't trouble me. But what does trouble me 
is when people use divisions and disagreements as excuses not to have to show love and kindness to those who are different from them. And if I can say it, that's what I see a lot of going on in our world out there today. You know, it seems to me that a lot of people today, they are playing this game, and the game is, are you worthy of my love or not? Are you deserving of my kindness or not? And the criteria for that game are questions like, are you for me or are you against me? Do you believe what I believe or do you believe something differently? Am I able to get something from loving you or are you dead weight? Are you not able to provide anything for me? In other words, it strikes me that the world out there, they would agree with the statement, love your neighbor as yourself, just as long as they get to choose the neighborhood. Just as long as they get to choose the neighbors. Now, once again, that doesn't surprise me. That doesn't make me sad. I don't get surprised when the world acts like the world. I expect the world to act like the world. Where I get surprised, however, and where I get sad is when the church acts like when the world. And when the church reflects within its four walls the same behavior that we see out there. And if I can say it, I think I've seen more of that over the last three years than ever before. In fact, I'll just come out and say it. I am a little concerned about next year. And the reason why is because many of you know next year is an election year. And understand, I am not concerned about who will end up in the White House. I know God's sovereign. He's in charge of that. I'm not concerned about that. But what I'm concerned about is whether or not God's church, and understand by that I don't mean Friends Church, I mean God's church in America. I am concerned about whether or not God's church will be able to weather the divisions and the disagreements that will inevitably surface next year. And the reason I'm concerned about it is because it was my observation that I think God's church barely made it through the last presidential election with the way that Christians tore each other up. And I think next year will be even worse. And what I hope we remember as we head into this next year is that though we may disagree on some things, even some big things, what I hope we remember is that division and disagreement in the Christian faith is never an excuse not to love someone. And what I hope we remember is that disagree, the disagreements that we have with other people are never reasons to discriminate against or to give preferential treatment to one group over another. And the reason why is because this is not how God treats us. And this is the point that James makes in verses 10 through 13. Look with me there. James says, forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We'll stop right there. And let me be honest with you, okay? That section of scripture right there is admittedly a very difficult section of scripture. In fact, if your eyes glazed over as I read it, know that my eyes glazed over about the first six or seven times that I read it. It's really tough. And I found out, been studying it, that you could probably do a whole message just on those couple of verses. But for the sake of simplicity here in time, let let me just give you the main point that James is making here, okay? The main point that James is making is this. You know, there is coming a day, brothers and sisters, when every single one of us, we are going to have to stand before God. And we're going to have to give an account of our lives. And understand, our God, he sees everything. He sees every sin, he sees every mistake, he sees every error, he sees every every good thing as well, but God sees everything. Now in light of that, 
Would any one of us be willing, on the day that we stand before God, would any one of us be willing to say to God, hey God, right now I want you to judge me using the same criteria that I use to judge other people on this earth. God, I want you to treat me right now the same way that I treated other people here on this earth. I don't think probably any of us would want to say that to God. Because we know that if we said that to God, we, we would be toast, right? No, when we stand before God at the end of time, what is it that we are going to want from God more than anything? Well, we're going to want his kindness. We're going to want his grace. We're going to want his love. And we're going to want his mercy. Well, since that's what we want to receive from God, guess what? That's what we need to give to other people. And that's the point that James is making here. Since God doesn't play favorites with us, right? As the old saying goes, the ground at the foot of the cross is level ground. Since God doesn't play favorites with us, and since God shows his love to us despite our very real flaws and shortcomings and failures, then who are we to decide that there are other people in this life that are not deserving of our love? Then who are we to decide that there are people that we have a right to treat with disdain and contempt and animosity based on really silly and superficial reasons like where they send their kids to school, whether or not they have a tattoo, or perhaps worst of all, based on the color of their skin? No, men and women, we are to treat others the same way that God treats us. That's the point. And that is what is to guide our lives here on this earth. Some of you may remember the story I told years ago about a man who wakes up in the middle of the night to find himself on a mysterious bus. And this bus is very strange because it's, it's actually flying through air. It's flying through the space. It's unlike anything this man has ever seen before. And so he's very confused and he looks around and there are other people on this bus and they're all really confused as well. And, and as the man continues to survey this bus, he sees a sign at the front of this bus and the sign says this, it says destination heaven. And it's at that point the man realizes what is going on. He has just died and he is now on the bus that is going to take him to heaven. Well, when he realizes that, he just gets a huge smile on his face because he realizes he's made it, he's going to heaven. And he realizes that about the same time that everybody else on the bus realizes that. And so there's this big celebration that, that, that breaks out and everybody's partying and high-fiving each other because they've all made it to heaven. And as everybody is doing that, the man looks a couple of rows in front of him and he sees a woman on this bus that he recognizes. And it's a woman who actually did a lot of wrong to him in this life. She defrauded him in some way. She took advantage of him. And she made life really miserable for him for a couple of years. And this man realizes, oh, this, this woman, she, she's also going to heaven. She's also made it to heaven. And, and when this man realizes this, the, he begins to feel this anger build up within him. Because he thinks, this woman did such horrible things to me on this earth. How in the world can she also be going to heaven? And so he just starts to get angrier and angrier and angrier. Well, finally, the bus makes it to the pearly gates of heaven, and the man gets out, and, and he stands in front of St. Peter, which is usually how these stories go. And before St. Peter can allow this man into heaven, th this man, he can't contain his anger anymore, and he just lets St. Peter have it. And he says, Peter, you know that woman over there? Do, do you know what she did to me on this earth? Do you know how she treated me? She, she did horrible things to me. She made life miserable for me. And you're going to let that woman into heaven? She doesn't deserve heaven. 
How, how in the world can heaven be filled with someone who is like her? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so this man just sort of lets St. Peter have it. Well, after this man finishes, St. Peter is silent for a couple of moments. And then very calmly, he looks at the man and he says, okay, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a choice. You have a decision right now. You can have justice or you can have mercy. Whatever you choose, you can have. You can have justice or you can have mercy. And this man, just sort of blinded with rage, he says, I don't want mercy. He says, I want justice. He says, give me justice. Well, when he says that, there's this sad look that comes upon St. Peter's face. He's quiet for a minute or two. And then he looks at the man and he says, okay, if you want justice, have it your way. You'll get justice. And in the next instant, the man finds himself on another bus. Only this bus is very different from the other bus. It's dark, it's dingy, and he's the only person on it. And the man looks around the bus, and all of a sudden he sees a sign at the front of the bus, just like at the other bus, only this sign is, is a little bit different. This sign doesn't say destination heaven. This sign says destination. Well, you know what this sign says. You see, if we want to receive grace and mercy and kindness from God, then we need to show grace and mercy and kindness to other people. And that's what leads to two statements that I want to give you out of this message. And this forms sort of the so what of this particular message. You can write these down if you want. The first statement is this. Don't let differences and divisions become excuses for discrimination. Don't let differences and divisions become excuses for discrimination. Listen, on this earth, differences and divisions will exist. In God's church, differences and divisions will exist. In this church, differences and divisions do exist. But as we said, if God treats us with love, despite the very real differences that exist between us and him, then we are to treat others with love no matter what differences exist between them and us. And therefore, what that means is as we search our heart, if we see within us a propensity towards discrimination or prejudice or even racism, then we need to call out these things for what they are, sin. And we need to do with these things what the Bible tells us to do with sin. And that is not excuse it. That's not laugh it off. It's the way we were raised. That's not hide it. But instead, what we need to do is we need to get down on our knees and we need to repent of it and we need to ask God's forgiveness for it. And then we need to ask for God's help to treat other people the way that he treats us. And let me tell you, it's important that we do this. Because if you look at the beginning of verse 13 here in James chapter 2, you will see that James suggests that if we hold on to prejudice and discrimination and racism in this life, and therefore, if we show a reluctance to show love and mercy to other people, then when we stand before God at the end of time, he may show a reluctance to show mercy to us. I mean, how else do you interpret the first part of verse 13? Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. That's about as sober a statement as we can find in the Bible. Divisions exist, differences exist, they are real, we don't need to ignore them. But for God's people, they are never to become an excuse for discrimination. That's the first statement. And then the second statement I want to share with you is this. Chuck Swindoll said this, and I like how he put it. He said, we need to let love be our law. 
We need to let love be our law. This past week as I was working on this message, I was remembering the story that Philip Yancey tells in his great book, What's So Amazing About Grace. And it's a story he tells about Hillary Clinton soon after she became first lady and her husband Bill was elected president and they'd moved into the White House. And soon after she became first lady, there was a Bible study that, of women that invited Hillary to come and attend it. And this Bible study was made up of other wives, primarily of, of, of congressmen on Capitol Hill. And when Hillary received this, this invitation to this Bible study, she was really reluctant to attend. And the reason why is because although Hillary had been raised in a Christian home and she had been raised going to the church, as I'm sure many of you know, especially during that first election, many, many Christians were opposed to Bill and Hillary, and many of them said very, very terrible things about them. And so Hillary was worried that she was going to go to this Bible study and she was just going to be attacked and she was going to be on the defense the entire time. But even despite that, to her credit, she decided to go to this Bible study. And when she went, she was shocked by what happened there. Because at the very beginning of this Bible study, the the leader of the Bible study actually apologized to Hillary for the way the Christians had treated her during the campaign. And they told Hillary that all they wanted to do is just shower her with love and grace and mercy. And they wanted her to know that she was welcome to come to this Bible study any time. Well, Hillary was so blown away by the reception that she received that later on she called up the leader of the Bible study and she asked this this woman if they could form a similar Bible study for young people her daughter's age so that Chelsea could also be surrounded by grace-filled Christians. And that's what happens when when love is our law. And remember what James calls love here. He calls it the royal law, which means, as I said, more than anything else, this is what we are to be about as Christians. This is what we are to be known for more than anything else. Now let me ask you, do you think we as Christians are known for our love more than anything else? I'm not entirely sure. Now listen, obviously, right? Obviously, the the, the world's definition of love is very different from the Bible's definition of love. And we need to point that out. The world often defines love as acceptance. The Bible defines love, however, as doing what is best for someone and leading someone into a closer relationship with Jesus. Therefore, what that means is sometimes the most loving thing that we can do is not accept a person's behavior and point out a person's sin and say some hard things to people. Absolutely, that's the case. There is such a thing as tough love in the Christian faith, and we need to recognize that. But as God's people, let me say this. Let's not become experts at the tough part of tough love, okay? That's what James says at the end of verse 13 when he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And what James is saying there is he's saying in this life, when given the choice between mercy and judgment, we need to err on the side of mercy. We need to err on the side of love. And so I ask all of us, I ask myself, how are we treating others with love, especially those who are different than us? How are we reaching out across the divisions and the differences that we may have with other people? And how are we seeking to do what is best for them? And how especially are we showing mercy and compassion, especially to those who wronged us? Because isn't that how God treats us? And listen, let me also say this, okay? You know, I can't ignore, brothers and sisters, what I started out this message with. And that is the love that God has for the poor and the outcasts and the marginalized of our society. 
Remember what Jeremiah said, right? To know God is to stand on the side of the poor and the needy. And so as God's people, all of our lives should include within it some service to those on the edges of this world. And that's why I'm excited that today we are taking that special offering for Katarina's Club. And that's why I'm excited about the next couple of months we're entering into at this church. Because through boxes of love and other things we're going to have, we have so many different ways that we're going to live out what God's word says. But let me say this, okay? You don't need to wait for us. How are you personally helping the poor? How are you personally standing on the side of the outcasts? How are you personally standing up for those who can't stand up for themselves? And if you can't answer that question, let let me just give you a place to start. And it's a really simple place, okay? When we see someone on the side of the road with a sign asking for money, and I'm seeing a lot more people these days doing that, here's what I'd ask us to do. Can we renounce the judgmental thoughts that we might have in those moments towards them? And instead, can we make it a practice of just praying for them? Of praying for God's love and praying for God's mercy and praying for God's compassion for them. In fact, can we do that for everybody? That for everybody encounter, we make it a habit to pray that God would help us treat them in the same way that God treats us. That's what this passage calls us to do. And that's why as we close here today, we are going to close with communion. And I just can't think of a better way to to, to think about and reflect on God's love and grace and mercy for us than to think about the cross and what Jesus did there. And that's what we do in the act of communion. So we're going to do that in just a moment. Before we do that, however, here's what I'd ask you to do. We're going to enter into a moment of reflection. And can I just ask you to bow your heads with me right now? And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, there's this question that I want to ask you. And the question is this. Who in your life is the most difficult person or persons for you to show love to right now? Who in your life is the most difficult person or persons for you to show love to right now? I would imagine for many of us in this room, immediately there was one person or maybe it was a group of people that popped into our minds because I think we all struggle with this to some degree at one time or another. Well, here's what I ask you to do. For whatever person that is, would you right now, would you ask for God's heart towards that person? Would you ask that God would begin to change your heart? And would you ask that God would help you to to, to learn to show mercy and grace and kindness towards that person? In your own words, would, would you ask God to do that right now? Now, maybe there are some of us in this room that if you ask God, as you ask God to do that, immediately you felt your heart change, and that's great if that happened. But I would imagine there's a fair number of us that we feel, still feel some resistance towards that. Well, if that's the case, here's what I want you to do right now. Would you ask God to just overwhelm you with his love for you? And would you let that then be a motivation and a picture of the love that you're to have for that other person? In your own words, just ask God to overwhelm you with his love for you so that can be a picture and a motivation of your love for the other person. And I'll give you a moment to do that.
Would you all stand with me right now as we get prepared to take communion? You know, what we're talking about today, brothers and sisters, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. It may be one of the most difficult things that we are asked to do in the Christian faith, truly. But here's what I want to let you know, okay? We will fail at it. it will be t- there will be times when we feel like we're able to love that person that we had just had come to our mind, and then there are going to be times when we feel that anger towards them. Here's what I want to let you know, okay? God is in it with us for the long haul. And our God is a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And every time we find ourselves struggling in this and failing in this, what we need to do is just get down on our knees and ask for God's grace and forgiveness. And he will give it to us. And we ask for God's help in doing that. And we do that over and over and over again. And let me tell you something. You cannot run out of God's grace, okay? Our God loves to give us his grace. And we know that because he sent his son Jesus to this earth. He paid the ultimate cost so that he could give us that grace so that we can be in a relationship with him. And that's exactly what we get to celebrate right now. You can go ahead and open up the bread side, the cracker side of your communion. On the night before Jesus' crucifixion, at a dinner he had with his disciples, towards the end of that dinner, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he passed it around to his disciples. And he said, this, is, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Every time you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. Friends, church, we believe that this represents the body of Christ that is broken for us. Let's eat it in remembrance of Jesus. You can open up the juice now, representing the wine. Following the bread, Jesus took a glass of wine and he passed that around to his disciples. And he said, this wine is my blood, which is poured out for you, listen to this, for the forgiveness of sins. And every time you do drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. Friends, church, we believe that this represents the blood of Christ, which is poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink it in remembrance of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, I'm reminded of that great hymn that says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my life, my all, God. And Father, uh, we we recognize right now that the first part of that statement, Lord, the love that you have for us, God, the mercy you show to us, the fact that you do not treat us according to our sins, God, and how grateful we are for that. Because if you did, Lord, as we said, none of us would be able to stand before you. None of us would be able to make it. But God, you want us into eternity with you, Lord. And so we thank you for that love demonstrated by the sacrifice of your son Jesus on the cross. But God, we also recognize that with that love, Lord, then comes actions, then comes a way that you desire for us to live, and that is to reflect your love to other people so that through us, people can get a a picture of how much you love them. And that's what I pray over every single one of us in this room, Lord. That with our coworkers and the fellow people at church, Lord, and our small group and the people in our neighborhood, Father, that whatever we do would just exude your mercy and your grace and your love, Lord, that we would put away all prejudice and all discrimination and anything that would get in the way, Lord, of just showing unconditional love to those around us, Lord, so that through us, people can get a picture of you, Father. And God, we thank you that you have provided us the greatest example of that, Lord, through your son, Jesus Christ, Father. And God, as we sing this final song in closing, Lord, I just pray that we would, we would in this time just recognize the, the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, the love that that represents, Father. And you would allow us to leave here today, Father, ultimately encouraged by your grace, your mercy, your kindness towards us, Lord. We love you so much. We thank you for all that you do for us, Father. And we ask all of this in your son's name and all God's people said, amen.